understand this book. And this is a prayer that many of your people have uttered. And we add ours to it. Teach us the Song of Solomon, your song. And we pray for the insight and understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, just a couple of things by, by way of introduction this evening. Last week, um, I made mention of some of the options. You know, we've talked about this a couple of times, the interpretive challenges. And I, I made mention of one of the questions I had about interpreting the book as a relationship of Christ and his bride is that the Bible does not usually portray us in a flattering light. And somebody pointed out that it might be the perspective of the bride as seen through the eyes of Christ, which is completely legitimate. Um, personally, although I'm really trying to, to reserve complete judgment until we get to the end of the book, I, I personally am convinced that the book has more depth than simply to be a human love story or to have a human application. I personally think that the very title of the book insists upon that, that for Solomon to write the Song of Songs, the greatest of songs, and to have as the subject matter anything confined to mere humanity is to kind of miss something that the Bible magnifies on a regular basis, which is the supremacy of God. So, But as I've said a couple of times, what I really want to do, or what I... What, I, what my intention is for us, and <clears throat> uh, sorry that you are my guinea pigs, <clears throat> is um, to really, at the beginning, focus just upon the poetry of, that is before us. It is a poem. It is Hebrew poetry, which doesn't sound at all like English poetry, but it is poetry nevertheless. It is romantic poetry. It is designed to be written as a beautiful romantic poetry. And before we begin to take it apart to find its spiritual meaning, I hope that we will be benefited by looking at it poetically and, and just becoming familiar with the ebb and flow of the book. Uh, this will be, I, in my mind, right? I'm, I'm opening the floor. This is kind of an interactive Bible study. Uh, uh, there's no doubt that you will note things that I did not note. You will find significance in things that I have overlooked. And so we're going to read it together and work our way through it together. And that brings me to the manner in which we will <clears throat> work through it. Um, In the early days of the American Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was at wit's end with finding a competent general for the army. And he went through a variety of generals. If you're familiar with Civil War history, you know that. The, the pattern was pick a general, lose a battle, fire a general, pick another general, lose a battle. And that was pretty much the pattern. And, and the man that gave him the most fits was George B. McClellan, who was a brilliant organizer Beloved by the soldiers, Lincoln hired him twice, Lincoln fired him twice. George McClellan utterly despised Abraham Lincoln, and in 1864 actually ran against him as a Democratic candidate for the President of the United States. But Lincoln is meeting with one of his advisors, and his advisor said, you have to get rid of McClellan. And Lincoln said, I know, who shall we get? 
And the advisor said, I don't know anybody. And Lincoln said, that's the problem. For you, 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 anybody will do, but I must have somebody. And I thought of that when I thought about how I was going to work us through this book. I don't think I'm exaggerating to say that I have come across at least 10 and maybe a dozen different explanations for the way the book is organized and the way that it should be followed. And so uh, I've, I found myself in one of those, I cannot just say anybody, I must choose somebody. And so although it is not without its influence, without its deficiencies, right, the, the way in which I will present the material through you is by noting a series of cycles. The, these, these, there are, we know there are a collection of poems um, in this magnum opus of Solomon's. And we would argue that there is a unified aspect to this. It's not a random collection of just love poems, but a message of those poems. So, so <clears throat> we're going to, and, and the outline that you have, the very simple outline this evening, is just that. It is the structure of the cycles that we will follow every time we come to one of the different poems, <clears throat> and we will work our way through this. <clears throat> what I do want to try and emphasize to us is that we don't overlook Right? The beauty of the expressions, the intimacy of the expressions, the complexity of what is being said. Uh, <clears throat> Solomon writes, again, this exquisite love poem or this exquisite collection of love poems. And one of the things that we're going to try and identify, and your Bible may have helps and it may not have helps. Mine does not have any helps to it. And so we may have conversations afterwards about whether or not the, I have this right, but, but we want to take note of who's talking. And this, by the way, is no small feat. Identifying who's talking in the Book of Song of Solomon uh, is sometimes very challenging. Uh, we'll want to try and figure out what gender that, per, that person is, and we'll try and figure out if, who they, if they're talking to anybody in particular. Um, then we're also going to try and make note of who they're talking to. Who, who is the audience that is listening to, to what they say? And, and what do they say? What, do, they, do they express a desire? Do they express a fear? Do they have any concerns? And, and then we want to take note of how they're saying it. Um, and, and this is something that has just troubled me with so many of the commentators that I have read is that they make such a speedy beeline to the allegorical or typological or metaphorical message that they completely ignore the, the, the expression of poetry by the, by the poet. Um, and so I hope that we can do that. And so, so, that, so that is our, the way we're going to look at it this, this evening. And so let's begin by looking at verses 2 through four. This is, this is our first segment. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. Because of the savor of thy good ointments, thy name is as ointment poured forth. Therefore do the virgins love thee. Draw me, we will run after thee. The king hath brought me into his chambers, we will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine, the upright 
love thee. So in this section, we have the first part of our cycle, and that is that the lovers are not together. <clears throat> the lovers are not together. And, and I'm going to deal with this as primarily a two-character poem, not, not as Solomon the interloper, but as Solomon the bridegroom. And, and we, we would presume that from the fact that <clears throat> the girl, right, who is speaking, obviously the female in the, in the relationship, because she is addressing a male, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And so there is, a, a, <clears throat> there is an obvious separation or distance here. And all we know at this point is that this is a girl that is talking, and she is talking about her lover. And she is talking to somebody about her desire to be with her beloved. And, and again, so we, we note the, the poetic imagery. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. We would assume that to be literal kissing. And then we have a metaphorical explanation. For thy love is better than wine. Right? So this, this, this poetic expression. And, and again, you know, not even going to go into this, that we Baptists tend to be a teetotaling bunch. And so the imagery is kind of lost on us. We're not concerned about that. The, the poet is speaking his language. But also in these verses, in verses 2 through 4, the first cycle is that the lovers are not together, but the second part of the cycle is that they desire to be together. It's really a very simple cyclical structure that we are following. They are not together. They are not happy that they are not together. They want to be together. Verse number 2 is a clear expression of desire. I want you to kiss me. And, and one of the things that I will do periodically, and this is because I am really not poetical, <clears throat> but I also find it sometimes helpful as I, I try to turn the poetry into prose, right? W what is the person saying? How are they saying it? Um, <clears throat> so who is speaking here? I think that the female continues to speak and she conveys her desire in verse number two by pointing out the good aroma of his aftershave. Which is not necessarily the way that the poem says. But again, I, right? Because of the savor of thy good ointments, thy name is as ointment poured forth. And of course, ointment would be a perfume, and masculine perfume is called aftershave. And the girl is talking to her beloved, you smell good. I like the way you smell. That's what she is saying. Now, again, folks, were we, were we really trying to deal with this allegorically, we would try to find some further meaning in that. But the meaning of the poem is, I am attracted to you. I like the way you smell. And not only do I like the way you smell, all the girls like the way you smell. And this is one of the other issues that arises in Song of Solomon, <clears throat> is... What do we make of this? And is, you know, is she just talking about his popularity? And that comes from, by the way, from the end of verse number three. Therefore do the virgins love thee. <clears throat> right? I love you because of the way you smell. <clears throat> and all the young girls love the way you smell. So what, how would we describe this beloved? Some kind of heartthrob. Right? This is a love poem about an expression 
of love. Your aftershave smells so good. Your name is like that, which is a, a Hebrewism, a Hebraism for the totality of person, all of their attributes. Not, not that <clears throat> your name is penciled in scented ink, but all the girls find you attractive. <clears throat> Back to verse number four, I want you, right? The, the second part of the cycle is, I want you. Draw me, verse number four. We will run after thee. <clears throat> and I think that, folks, we just have to understand that in the poetry there, <clears throat> contextually, the we is a reference back to the virgins of verse number three. All the girls will chase you. All the girls will chase you. Draw me, we will run after thee. The king hath brought me into his chambers. And we're gonna <clears throat> we're gonna we're gonna come back to this, right? There's there's this is another part of the part of the cycle there's there's a little bit of an interpretive discussion there and <clears throat> without bogging down, down into it which is well beyond my abilities it's it's translated there as we will run after they we will, we will desire to that's in, in our king james draw me we will run after thee the king or i'm sorry hath brought me into his chambers the interpretive discussion there is is it really past tense or is it just expressing a desire. Um, <clears throat> we will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine. The upright love thee. So drag me along. Grab hold of me. We will run after you. The king has brought me into his chambers. <clears throat> and again, folks, while we would, I think, automatically by default assume the king to be Solomon, and I wouldn't fight with that, it might be entirely possible that king is just simply a romantic expression the way a husband might call his wife his queen. And again, I've already mentioned this, the verb brought there can equally indicate not just a statement of fact, but an intention of desire, which is how the author who has outlined it this way intends it, the upright love you. <clears throat> You have virtues. You don't just smell good. You have virtues that are desirable. And the girl here is continuing to speak. She is talking about her lovers. And she seems to be addressing a group that we will encounter in verse number five, the mysterious daughters of Jerusalem, <clears throat> whoever these people are. And then, of course, again, folks, we ask the question, who is the king? who is the king. And if we were to take to approach it from the three-character position, right? <clears throat> this is the young girl talking to her shepherd boy who is concerned about the evil intentions of Solomon. So, <clears throat> John Philip says in verse number four, if you care, commentator, says that what's going on here is that Solomon kidnapped her and her appeal is for her shepherd boy to come and rescue her. Come and get me, seize me, draw me, I will follow you. The king has taken me against my will. So when we get to the end of verse number four, folks, we have two parts of our cycle. <clears throat> Not together, but desirous to be together. That brings us to a third part of the cycle, which is verses five and six. I am black but comely. O ye daughters of Jerusalem, 
as the tents of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon. Look not upon me because I am black, because the sun hath looked upon me. My mother's children were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but mine own vineyard have I not kept. So we have first part of the cycle, not together. Second part of the cycle, desiring to be together. Third part of the cycle, there is some impediment that is addressed. And it might be a physical barrier, or as it is in this case, the female's condition. And it is again, of course, the female speaking, pointing out both the obstacle and why it shouldn't be an obstacle. But there is an impediment of some kind mentioned. And and she is speaking to this audience, these daughters of Jerusalem, these these other girls. And I think that in some ways the poem is addressed to others, whether it be to to persuade them or to convince them, we don't know. I am black, but pretty. That's what she argues. I am black, but pretty. Black as the tents of Kedar, which must have used some black fabric in their tents. As black as Solomon's curtains. And then she appeals to not let this be a problem. Look not upon me because I am black. Don't be tripped up by the depth of color of my skin. Now, one of the things that we're inclined to do is to read this through purely racist lenses. But you want to remember something, folks. Solomon is a Middle Easterner. Solomon was not fair-skinned, and he didn't have blue eyes, and he didn't have blonde hair. Solomon was dark-complected. And in fact, there are some people who would have made the case that Solomon's mother Bathsheba was herself a black woman. So Solomon may have been what we would call a mixed race child. What is most likely being addressed, folks, is not simply race, but status or class. One of the things that we know from European history, excuse me, particularly Europeans who had no experience with other races or had little experience with other races. And I know this sounds really goofy to us, but it is nevertheless what some Europeans believe. Some Europeans, medieval Europeans, and these are not European people, but some Europeans believed that all babies were born white. All babies were born white. And then their skin color changed depending upon how much exposure to the sun they had. Now, I'm not saying that these people believe that, but you'll notice, folks, that she is not tying the color of her skin to her race, but to her exposure to the sun. Don't look upon me. Don't let my blackness be an obstacle. Here's why I am black. Verse number six. 
Look not upon me because I am black, because the sun hath looked upon me. Right? I have spent a lot of time in the sun. And that is because my mother's children were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but mine own vineyard have I not kept. Now again, folks, right? We just we can just roll up our sleeves and wade down into the never-ending spiritual metaphors and allegories of keeping a vineyard, but not my own vineyard. But let's just leave the poem lie where it is right now. This is the explanation of the lover. We're not together. I really want to be with you. There might be some problem with the color of my skin, which is reflected in my lowly status. I got sent to the fields because my mother was angry with me. This is my life, right? And, and I think that's primarily the way to understand this. Again, not, not going off into, into the depths of spiritual responsibility, but look at the life that I have lived, this humble shepherd girl, this humble girl. I have lived my life in the fields. I have not been able to attend to anything that is mine because I have been given the responsibility to attend for that which belongs to another. Let's just leave it there. That is the explanation of the poem. That is her explanation for why she is the way that she is. She has been punished. She has been dealing with things that are beyond her control over which she could not remedy and this is the life that she has. So that brings us then to the end of the, th- the third portion of the cycle. They are not together. They desire to be together. There is some obstacle to them coming together, again, whether physical or in this case, social. But finally then, beginning in verse number seven, <clears throat> they come together. Verse number seven, tell me, O thou whom my soul loveth, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at, at noon. For why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? If thou know not, O thou fairest among women. I'm sorry, I've got to look at something here and get myself ahead. Okay. If thou know not, verse number eight, thou fairest among women, go thy way forth by the footsteps of the flock and feed thy kids beside the shepherd's tents. I have compared thee, O my love, to a company of horses in Pharaoh's chariots. Thy cheeks are comely with rows of jewels, thy neck with chains of gold. We will make thee borders of gold with studs of silver. While the king sitteth at his table, my spikenard sendeth forth the smell thereof. A bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved unto me. He shall lie all night betwixt my breasts. My beloved is unto me as a cluster of camphor in the vineyards of Engedi. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes. Behold, thou art fair, my, my beloved. Yea, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. The beams of our house are cedar and are rafts of fir, rafters of fir. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. As the lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. As the apple tree among the trees of wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. 
So here is the fourth cycle. They desire to be together. They are not together. They desire to be together. They address an impediment to their being together. They finally come together. And this does not immediately describe a physical coming together, but, or a sexual coming together, but they have come together. In verse number 7 of chapter number 1, we believe that it is the female who is speaking, pretty much certain. Tell me, O thou whom my soul lovest, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon, for why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? Where are you having lunch? That's the question. Where are you having lunch? I would like to meet you. Let's get together. So she is most certainly, it seems, in this case, addressing Solomon. And again, this is assuming the two-character portion of the psalm. And the, the idea there of turning aside in verse number 7. <clears throat> right? <clears throat> Why get wrapped up in others is what she is talking about. I want my attention to be completely and totally upon you. Turned aside has the idea of being covered. That's the way it's used in 15 of its 17 expressions in the Old Testament. Why should I get caught up in others when you are the object of my desire? It appears then in verse number 8 that he is speaking. This is the first time that we have the male voice. If thou know not, O thou fairest among women... Go thy way forth by the footsteps of the flock and feed thy kids beside the shepherd tents. So he is responding to her question. Now what is unknown is whether he is responding gently, helpfully, fondly, or whether there's a hint of a rebuke. How can you not know? How can you not know where I would be? Or is it just simply this? Follow the common trail. Follow the footsteps. And I will be where you would expect me to be. And then in verses 9 and 10, the man continues to speak. I have compared thee, O my love, to a company of horses in Pharaoh's chariots. Again, right? The strong and desired and beautiful is the idea. These are things, right? We make jokes about it. We all laughed about it last week. But these are not the kinds of expressions of fondness that we would use. We would not compart. <clears throat> Let me back up. Because I'm an old man. So I, I don't want to say never. Most of us would know better than to compare our wives to any kind of livestock. Most of us. I hope. I hope. Even if it's the most beautiful specimen of livestock that has ever been. That's just, seriously, that is just not the way we would express our love. But again, folks, we're not trying, part of the challenge of reading the book is we're not reading 21st century sitcom poetry. We're reading very old romantic poetry. 
You are like a company of horses in Pharaoh's chariots. These are the best of the best. Thy cheeks are comely with rows of jewels, thy neck with chains of gold. You look nice. I mean, there's the prose version. You look nice. Your jewelry makes you look nice. You're desirable and attractive. It appears in verse number 11, we can debate this on and on, that the audience at this point speaks as if, Right, and, and, and again, and, and I think I've kind of mentioned this, there are some people who view the Song of Solomon as not just a poem, but a poem that was intended to be performed. And so the audience participates, the audience being these daughters of Jerusalem. And so now they respond. We will, uh, there's certainly a plural there. We will make the borders of gold with studs of silver. If your jewelry makes you look good, we will enhance your beauty with more jewelry. Again, this is the expression of the poem. And then we know that they are together at this point from chapter 1, verse 12, down through chapter 2 and verse number 3. The girl is speaking in verses 12, 13, and 14. We know that because she's making a male reference while the king sitteth at his table. Right? While the king was sitting at the table, my perfume smelled good. His aftershave smelled good. My perfume smelled good. Again, folks, the, the poem is rich with senses, with sight, sound, smell, touch. Not only did I smell good, did, did he smells good. <clears throat> A bundle of myrrh is my beloved unto me. He smells good. He shall lay on my chest all night long. We're together. We're together. Verse number 14, my beloved is as unto me as a cluster of camphor in the, in the vineyards of Engedi. <clears throat> and camphor is a very difficult word to describe in terms that we under. Stand and, and here's what I mean. In your King James Bible, the word that is found here, camphor, is sometimes translated pitch. He pitched it within and without with pitch. And it is sometimes translated with the word ransom. And it is even occasionally translated with the word village. Let's just go with a very straightforward and simple yet vague answer, right? He is like a cluster of desirable fruit or a desirable plant. He is appealing to me, right? The, the lovers are expressing their interest in each other in poetic language. You smell good. You look good. You remind me of something that is good. I want to be with you. It's not vulgar, it's not sensual. Verse number 15 is probably the man speaking, Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair, thou hast dove's eyes. Beautiful eyes, again, is the idea. And verses 16 and 17 are probably her response 
to him. They're together. They're conversing. Behold, thou art fair, my beloved, yea, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. And the idea there is luxuriant, fresh, and desirable. Green. Our bed is green. Verse number 17, the beams of our house are cedar and our rafters of fir. We have a nice place. We have a nice place. Chapter 2, verse number 1, is also probably the woman speaking. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. Now that is probably not our rose, although roses did exist then, but rose was just one of the words used to describe any number of variety of flowers. And I am a lily of the valley. Now, Right? We've taken that language, and I'm not, I'm not criticizing this, I'm just noting this. We've taken that language and we have applied it to Christ, and there's nothing wrong with that. But probably it is the woman speaking to describe herself <clears throat> as <clears throat> really in, in, in really rather common language. I'm a flower, I'm a lily. Verse number two is probably him speaking, right? She describes herself rather commonly. I'm a rose, I'm a lily, him. No, no, that's not true. You are unique. Verse number two, as the lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. You stand out. You are truly unique. You are special. You stand out among all the girls. And then in verse number three of chapter two, it probably returns back to her speaking. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. You too, my love, are a rare find. A conversation expressing their mutual love and admiration. This is the poem. This is the poem. They are not together, but they want to be together. Some impediment arises, and yet they come together, and they express their mutual love, attraction, and devotion. And then in chapter 2, beginning in verse number 3, down to verse number 7, we, we close out the cycle with, with kind of a transitional <clears throat> scene. If you look right in the middle of verse number three, I sat down under his shadow with great delight and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. Stay me with flagons, comfort me with apples for I am sick of love. His left hand is under my head and his right hand doth embrace me. I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that ye stir not up nor awake my love till he please. It appears here that the female is doing the speaking, and she is speaking to the daughters of Jerusalem. She is explaining to them what happened. I sat under his shadow with great delight. 
He brought me to his banqueting house. He flew the flag of love over me. It is also overwhelming. That's what's going on there in verse number 5. Stay me with flagons. A flagon was a raisin cake. It was nourishment. It was sustenance. Slay, stay me with flagons. Comfort me with apples. For I am lovesick is the idea. I think you probably already know that. Not his love has made me physically ill. But I am lovesick. I am so smitten with my love. And he holds me. And then I would just call your attention to this note. We'll, we'll wind this down in, in verse number 7. Because this is a, we, we will see this refrain again. Verse number 7, I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose, by the hinds of the field, that ye stir not up nor awake. And you'll notice the insertion there of the word my. You'll see that our translators have put the man to sleep in an, as a nap. And there's, I'm just going to mention this, there is just endless discussion about whether the word my should be there. Those who interpret this on just and exclusively a human level, as, as kind of a love manual for couples, refuse the word my. And argue that the passage is talking about inciting the passions before the time. Now that would be something we would perhaps tackle at a later date. But right, that, that is the transition. There's that closing movement. And the cycle will repeat itself. Different language, different situations. But the, but the, but the, the cycle will repeat itself. And that is what we will tackle next week. Okay. If you want to take your prayer bulletin, and I'm, I'm happy to talk to you about this afterwards, and I'm happy, more than happy, to be corrected uh, <clears throat> on this, <clears throat> or at least called into question. So, anything on your prayer bulletin that you need for us to address specifically before we go to prayer? No, we good? All right, let's pray, and we'll.